Hello there. My name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. This is part two of my interview with BBC Radio Lancashire's Martin James. At the close of part one, we just finished looking at your many practical achievements, but these pale into insignificance when you consider that all were achieved while suffering from multiple sclerosis, which has to serve as an example to everyone. Yeah, well, uh, everybody sort of sees me and they say, Oh, are you out of mine? And I hear people say, It's always cheerful, Martin. Don't moan about it much. Anything he moans about is litter and slobs. Well, I can't stick either. But I must admit, when I was diagnosed with uh, MS, I was running around the world fit as a butcher's dog. On a one-to-one basis, nobody ever frightened me. I was quite prepared to take anybody on. I could do most things. I could climb the biggest trees. I could climb mountains. I'd do anything like. And suddenly, it all stopped. They took me in hospital. I was in 17 weeks. It took them a long time. In them days, they didn't do brain scans and lumbar punctures. And I remember the registrar said, we're going to take a lumbar puncture. Oh, no, we're just going to take a sample off you. So I said, yeah, right oh sir. And the next minute, I've got half a dozen gorgeous nurses around me. And I thought, whoa, this is all right. And one nurse is holding one arm and another nurse is holding another arm. Another nurse is bent me backwards like. And then they're holding me legs. Evidently, I didn't know at the time, but you mustn't move. Then I felt this needle go in. And it seemed to be going in and going in and I'm waiting for it to come out of my stomach. And it took, seemed to take quite a while and I tell you, the pain was excruciating. And then I had to lay on me back for 24 hours. Mustn't move. I said, you mustn't move. If you do, you get blinding headaches. So I done as I was told and they, f- they wanted to give me drinks through a, a bottle like you have, give a little baby and I refused. I said, no, I ain't drinking through that. I said, don't worry, I... I use a, use a tube with some water, that I do. Then a few days later, I, the old ward matron come to me, she used to love it. she said, say, you having a lumbar puncture this afternoon at two o'clock? So I could have to think about it all morning. And they had another one, another one. When we got to the fifth one, and that morning, this bloke came along, and he got a huge big bit of hardboard. Took me mattress off the bed and put this hardboard on. I said, what's that, the bottom of me coffin? And he laughed. And he said, no, he said, because you've had so many lumbar punctures, he said, you've got to be on something solid. No, I said, well, I won't find much more solid than a bloody great chunk of chip ball, will I? So I had a number lumbar puncture. That was my last one, thankfully. But it turned out that the first lumbar puncture, they knew I'd got MS, but they couldn't believe it because of my lifestyle and it. And I remember the consultant coming round Friday afternoon, about two o'clock, three o'clock, yeah. And he went to the first bloke guy, a major, in the the army, and he got a brain tumour. So he said, well, and evidently it turned out. They'd arranged for a couple of uh, surgeons come from Austria to see if they could do anything, but sadly he passed away a couple, three weeks later. And then he come back to the next bloke, was next to me, was John. He was a captain of two para, and he was a bit of a lad, and he'd been in for an heart attack. He, I heard him saying to John, well, he said, I'm very sorry, sir, he said, your military career is over, he said, you've got to take things easy, blah, 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 and all the rest of it. He said, but you can go home, you can go home tomorrow. Then he come to me, and they pulled the curtains round, and I thought, oh dear, what have I got? And I'm thinking of the dreaded sea cancer put the curtains round and there's the consultant there's the registrar there's two doctors there's four or five nurses the consultant Mr Watson his name he's looking at these these boards like charts and that and he's looking at me are you alright? yes sir and there's long pause and he'd say uh, sure you're right? yeah yeah and in the end I said to him right come on I said tell me what's wrong with me because you're all muttering among yourself. I said, you're shifting your feet around. So there's some bad news. Let me have it. You've got to tell me. I don't want you telling me family or anybody else. Tell me. Because I'm the one that's got to deal with it. 
And he said, uh, well, well, uh, uh, and he ummed and hard and ummed and hard, probably for five minutes, I suppose. Then he said, I'm very sorry, he said, you got motosclerosis. I leaned forward and grabbed his hand and shook it. I said, thanks very much, mate. Now I know what I've got to deal with. He said, well, do you know anything about it? Well, a little bit, yeah. He said, we'll fit you up with a wheelchair. I said, right, that's all right then. Right, first thing first. I says I've got to have a wheelchair. I'd like a little floats on the side of it and a little clamp on the back to put a little electric outboard on and then I can take myself out across the lakes. And he laughed. I said, can I go home? And he said, no. And I said, oh, let me go home. He said, well, no. He said, I need you here. He said, I'd like to start you on a course of of uh, tablets on Monday. I said, yeah, all right. And I said, but let me go in for the weekend. So he said, oh, all right. He said, you can go in for the weekend. So I phoned my mate up, Mike, Mike Harris up, and I said, can you come and pick me up? I said, I'm going for the weekend. Yes, he said. I said, call around Collins Trout Farm, I said, and get me eight or nine of the biggest bloody trout he's got. And what do you want them for, mate? I said, I'll tell you when you get up, just get them. He came up and picked me up at the hospital, and away we went. And he took me back on a Sunday night. Because I was told if he didn't, that an ambulance would come and pick me up. So Monday morning, when I went back in, I handed out these trout. I said, well, that's for you, that's for you, doing nurses. I said, put them in, put them in the fridge. I said, for Mr. Watson. So when he come round Monday, he come round to see me Monday afternoon, he said, cool, he said, thank you very much for the trout, he says. That's very nice of you. I said, yeah. He said, uh, would you like to go home tomorrow? I said, well, yeah, yeah. He said, I said, but you said you want to keep me in longer and put me on a course of treatment. No, he said, he said, I thought we'd have to put you on the antidepressants and watch you very carefully. I said, well, I ain't going to top myself, mate. I said, don't worry about that. So I went home and I suppose for 18, 20 months, I was virtually bedridden. Like I was in, you know, laying in bed, I'd have a nurse come in and shave me and all that, and I hated that, so in the end I decided to grow a beard. And that, that was the worst part of my life. I was unbearable to live with, I know I was. I hated everybody and everything. I just couldn't cope with that. And then one day, it was suggested I should go to a physical handicap centre a couple of days a week, a couple of mornings a week. And I had big chips on my shoulders. I had ten chips on each shoulder. Why me? Why me? Why have I got this? So I went down to the handicap centre and I goes in and the bloke comes hopping along on a piece of leather. And he's got no legs. And he comes to me, hello mate, you're new? I said, yeah. Good here, he said. Is it? Yeah. He said, we got a good dinner, he says. We get a, a dinner, dessert and a cup of tea and it's only 22 pence. Oh, I thought, big deal. But I've still got my chips on my shoulders. Oh, right. Then another bloke comes in, and he's hopping, and he's carrying a leg under his arm. And I says, what's this, a funny farm? No, he says, I said, what's that guy? Oh, he lost his leg, he's lost his leg. He said, and it chaffs him a lot, so when it starts getting sore, he just unstraps it and hops in. Oh, bloody hell. <laughs> so then a woman comes round, she's blind. She comes round and sort of touches me hand and nods. And then, if there's an angel around, this girl is an angel. Now, what is her name, uh, dear? Good God, I can see her there now. Anyway, she's in a wheelchair. Her arms end at her elbows, and her legs end at her knees. Can't talk or anything, but she can smile. So all she can do is she's got a tube in her mouth operating this wheelchair. Christine, that's the name, Christine. And I looked at her and I thought, well, if you're an angel, they do exist. And she nodded to me and smiled. And I thought, what have I got wrong with me? And I immediately sat up in my wheelchair thinking, I've got nothing wrong with me. Whatever I've got, I can deal with that poor girl. Now, that is being disabled. And that would change my whole life, seeing that girl. And after that, I really got into this this table centre for sports mainly. Turn up every Thursday night for sports night, play table tennis. And then I remember one day they said, it's the Northern Games at Bolton. Anybody want to take part? And I'm listening. 
and uh, somebody said, well, what, what, what sports are there? And then she goes through a list. So I put my end up. I said, put me down with table tennis, shot, javelin and discus. Oh, right. Have you done them before? I said, well, I used to do javelin and discus before, yeah. When I was young and fit, like. So I put them down. And anyway, I went off to these games. And it was brilliant. Because I'd got two kids at home, 10 and 12. And I came home from there with two gold medals and a silver. And so I was able to give my daughter one gold and my son one gold. And I thought, and that was it, like, because my kids were having a lot of stick at schools, like, you know, oh, your dad's a cripple and all this crap, like. And after that, it, it changed completely. And then I remember they said it's the National Disabled Angling Championships at Pinefield in Berkshire. We'd like you to fish for us. Oh, I can't do that, I says. I'm a professional against them, but no, 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 we want you to fish. I said, well, I can't get down there, and the manageress said, me and my husband will take you down there. So I went off and down there, and I won that. I won the wheelchair section of that, and uh, I got this big cup, and I said to the manageress, I said, oh, well, I don't want that, you can have that, and I got a big bottle of champagne, I said, I said, the cup can go to the club, I said, you and your can have a bottle of champagne. And then I'd done these games all over the country, and then it went to Stoke Mandeville for the national games. And I won a gold in the discus and a gold in the javelin there. And uh, I don't know what record it was. The gold, I set up a new international record for either the javelin or discus. I can't remember now. And it still stands today. But they used to, they used to chain me wheelchair down like, you get three throws. But I used to say, they, you know, they said, right, you got three throws at a shot. No, I said, I've got one throw. I said, because I'm too knackered after that. And I'd give it all the welly I could, like, and push a shot. And uh, I managed to get a bronze on that one in the end. And then it come to the javelin and discus. And what I'd done on the discus, I'd got a highly polished piece of wood so I could swing round in my wheelchair like you would if you were standing up to throw the discus. And that helped me a lot. And again, I uh, I one throw in it, and one throw in a javelin. I was too buggered after that, uh, and that was it. And then I just sat around the rest of the day watching all the other athletes and having a good time. And then we had a bit of a party that night. And the following day, there's some other events. And about three o'clock in the afternoon, they announced all the winners, and I got two goals. And I was very proud of that. I was. And uh, at Stoke Mandeville, what we had, we had prisoners from Buckingham Prison looking after us and uh, I had this prisoner and uh, I said to him what are you in for mate I uh, said I've done a bit of burglary I said gonna do it again no he said I ain't he said it's horrible now I said well just look at it this way there's always worse people off than yourself I know he said I've seen them here he said he said how do you stay so cheerful he said he said stuck in a wheelchair I said well I've got a lot of friends I go fishing, I go shooting, shooting in a wheelchair, yeah, I said. My mate takes me and my wheelchair and my dog and he drops us off, drops me off at a big field over in Yorkshire. And I slowly creep along in my electric wheelchair, along this big long hedgerow, it's about four or five hundred yards long. I said, and my dog's beside me, and when I see a rabbit bolt out, I go, whack, bang, sometimes I eat it and sometimes I don't, and I send the dog to pick it up. So it's lovely for me because I've got to see it all the time, <laughs> and that was it. Like, so yeah, MS. It was uh, it was an hard time, and then during this period with the MS, my doctor suggested perhaps I'd like to join Crossroads, and I said, "Well, what is Crossroads?" And he explained it's an organisation where we try to give carers a better quality of life by letting them have a day off and looking after their caring duties and put a trained carer in. And I thought. That's very good, that's good, that, I believe in that. And so I joined Crossroads and I had several years there, out fundraising everything for them. We'd have coffee mornings on a Saturday like four or five times a year. I'd always make sure they got a few decent raffle prizes from tackle companies and that. And we'd uh, done a lot of good. I uh, ended up as vice chairman. I remember going to a meeting of various charities once and I'm sitting at lunch and uh, a woman said to me, she said, you're from Crossroads? I said, yes. She said, you get lots of publicity? I said, yeah, well, we, we, we make sure we get publicity. We work at it. I said, who are you with? She said, AIDS Concern. I said, 
She said, why don't you come and join us? I said, no. She said, it was good pay. Pay, I said. We don't get paid, don't you? I said, no. I said, we do it for nothing. We don't, don't you get expenses? No, we don't want expenses. I said, we do this for nothing. We don't claim telephone calls, petrol allowances, anything. Everybody on our committee does it because they want to do it. Oh, she says, I'm on uh, so many thousand pounds a year on a company car. I said, oh, well, good on you. And I thought to myself, yeah, well, that ain't being charity. You're just an in, you know, somebody employed in a job. And I was quite disgusted about that. And after that, I looked into, into the funding of these various charities. And uh, it seems that uh, it's probably every pound raised, only a penny goes to the charities. So I was thankful that... I was with Crossroads and uh, I think Crossroads countrywide do a very fine job. And let's not forget the most prestigious award of them all, your recent MBE in the 2012 Queen's Birthday Honours List. They certainly don't hand those things out for nothing. Well, before we get to that really, I need to mention the Illuminated Scroll from the ACA and Life Membership of the ACA which was granted to me in 1987 for me work for conservation and angling. That was a big moment for me, that was held at, luncheon was held at Fishmongers Hall and I went down and I got presented with this and uh, that is angling on my wall in my study. I was very proud of that award. Then the following year I was asked to compare a chat show in front of several thousand anglers celebrating 50 years of carp fishing in the memory of Richard Walker. And so I said, yes, I'll do that. I said, how much you want? I don't want nothing for it. I don't want no expenses, no nothing. I'm going to do it for the great man. And I remember three people couldn't turn up. Maurice Singham, Dick Cafford and BB. And I said, well, what we do, we're going, we're going video them. We can't afford that. Don't worry, I'll take care of it. So I took care of all that and we went and videoed them guys so we could show it on the big screen at the chat show and I've done this chat show and we started off with modern anglers and we went right back to 1940s carp anglers absolute stunning it was brilliant I wore evening dress for that event because I felt it deserved it I'd bring all these anglers in groups on and then I went back and back and then finally I come back to the last group the oldest group of carp anglers the people that were the pioneers I said now we go back in time we're going to go back to meet the pioneers of carp fishing when we had big band music when women wore stockings and suspenders and all this and it raised a big laugh and then I brought these old pioneers on and then uh, 1993 I've received what I can only think is the highest accolade I could ever be awarded. When I got awarded the Richard Walker Trophy, it's a bronze bust of Richard Walker weighing 30 odd pounds, and I got awarded that for services to angling and conservation. I was the only individual to ever receive it. The first one uh, was presented to the ACA, and quite rightly so. And then after that, it should have been an annual award, see? But each year went by and uh, it wasn't being presented. And Tony Jones of Blackpool, sadly he's passed on now, he would phone me up after a NASA conference and say, they haven't awarded the Walks Trophy, but you was top if they had done. But they didn't think they were suitable yet. And then in 1993, I was awarded it and then they broke the mould and uh, the saying goes that they broke the mould because they didn't think anybody else would be deserving of it. That with them was the highest accolade I could achieve. And every morning I go into my study and there's Dick sitting there alongside my desk. And I'm morning Dick and he's got a smile on his face. Because he was a great role model to me. He was a person that made me more a more better and caring person. He was. Yeah, I had a lot of role models from his teachers to my parents and so forth. But he was really was a role model as regards angling. Then this year, year 2012, I received a letter in, in April from the cabinet office saying that I was uh, being awarded an MBE for voluntary services, not paid services, voluntary services to charity conservation and angling 
and I I couldn't think of anything else and I had to read this letter five or six times before it really kicked in and I thought whoa in the Queen's Diamond Jubilee the Diamond Jubilee of Walker's 44 pound carp my 70th year of angling I'm going to be awarded an MBE and it was going to be announced on June the 16th the first day of the fishing season and I would be down on a tench lake float fishing I thought oh how wonderful so I immediately phoned my daughter in Dubai and told her and I phoned my son and told my wife but I couldn't tell anybody else I wasn't allowed to tell anybody else and then we was down at the lake on June the, June the 15th Gary Newman from Angler's Mail was there doing a magazine feature me and Phil Chun and uh, about 8 o'clock in the evening I said to him right lads I've got some we're sitting around having a mug of tea I said oh, I've got some very important news to tell you I said I can tell you now I ain't supposed to tell anybody until June the 16th but I can tell you now because you won't be able to do anything with it like so they said what's that then I said I've been awarded a MBE in the Queen's Birthday Honours List being announced a minute after midnight tonight oh well done so Gary said what do we call him I said you call me Martin then somebody said did we touch a forelock no nope. and then uh, Phil Chun said I suppose we'll have to bait his hook for him and this other lad I can't think of a name now he says I'm not cooking his breakfast either and it was quite amazing that on June the 16th was announced and then the BBC phoned me up about 20 to 9 that morning said congratulations on your MBE we'd like to talk to you do a life piece with you yeah righto so there a bit of music played and then they come to me live and said uh, we've got great news Martin Jones has been awarded the MBE blah blah and I'm talking to them and suddenly the old float went away and I struck and I hooked the first fish of the season and it was good tension it was good tension Gary's there with the camera wants a picture but I can't play the fishing because I'm holding the phone in the other end and I'm having to talk for about nine minutes and then uh, they went and I netted me fish and it was a six seven tench so that was a great start great start to uh, a new season and to be awarded an MBE well from the Queen I've admired I had admired a father King George VI as well like I've always been a royalist I've been brought up to respect the royal family I think the Queen has done a wonderful job nobody could have done a better job I think Prince Philip has been very very good alongside her as well and uh, I think we couldn't have done better and when I think back as I wrote in a newspaper in a letter to the newspapers I said how horrid it would be to have a President Blair or Cameron <laughs> you've mentioned the names of a few late greats including the man you describe as your role model Dick Walker who's still revered by many even 30 odd years after his death most of us will already know these people's angling pedigree, so perhaps you could give us a bit of an insight into the character of some of them, starting with that man, Richard Walker. Well, Richard Walker first come into my life when I was about 13, he wrote, or perhaps 14, he wrote a couple of articles on carp fishing in the Fishing Gazette. He wrote under the name of Water Rail. Well, as we know, Water Rails are very secretive birds. You don't often see them. I'll be fortunate that I've seen them on several occasions, or quite a few occasions over the years, because I've been a bit of a secretive angler myself. I creep and crawl into position. I really, I'm that, that quiet at the waterside. Recently, I had a kingfisher come and land on the rod, three foot up from my hand. And it perched there for a little while, and then flew off. And it turned back, turned up a few minutes later with its youngster. And they both perched on the rod. And then the, the, the male or the adult dived into the water, caught a bullhead, come up, whacked it on the rod, and then fed it to the youngster. And then they both shuffled up their feathers as if to say, cool, that was good, Dad, and then flew off. Now that's how quietly I like to be sitting at the waterside. So Richard Walker, he come out then, and then the turning point in my whole angling life suddenly happened when he had a book published 1953, I'd known about his record carp called 13th of September 1952 at 4.20 in the morning. Him and Pete Thomas had gone from Hitchin, Hertfordshire 
down to Ribmar Pool, and on the way to Ribmar Pool, the chassis come off the car in North Leach. And so, they went and knocked up the garage, local garage owner, and said, could anything be done? And the garage owner said, yes, he said, and he went round and he roused up his two mechanics, come back, anyway, they sorted all the car out, and Dick said to the garage owner, how much you owe you, mate? Would 10 bob be all right? So whether Dick paid him another 10 bob or not, I don't know. But And then they carried on to Redmire. And they got to Redmire, and it was one of the darkest nights of the year. There's a big black cloud building up from the west. So they decided to pitch a little tent, just to keep the things in like. And then they cast out their balanced bread paste, and their baits were only feet apart. And then they sat there. Then uh, around 4.20 in the morning, Dick's bite indicator sounded. Um, Pete Thomas said, it's your rod, Dick. And Dick put his hand under the, under the rod, the back of his hand, so the line could go, he could feel the line going across the back of his hand, because the back of your hand is very, very sensitive. And then he banged his bail arm in, watched the line tight, and then struck. And he hooked this big carp. And as he's playing it, as he said, it was like sandbags it in the rod as it powered away. And eventually they got it in the net. And they, they weighed it roughly on a couple of scales at about 40 pounds. So they knew it was a new record. So the following morning, Dick phoned London Zoo and said, Would you like a 40 pound carp? And they said, We've got a 14 pound carp. No, he said, not 14, 40. 4-0. Later on, two men turned up with a big tank, took the carp away, and Dick had it arranged, arranged it for it to be weighed when it, accurately when they got back into the zoo, and it went 44 pounds. Now this shook the whole angling world. This made so, this was major news that it was on BBC television, black and white in them days on the news. This story of the 44 pound carp. When I tell you that thousands and thousands of anglers would not believe it was caught, they said, no, carp can't grow that big. But Walker proved they could. And earlier on that season, he'd had already had a 31 and a quarter pounder. But in actual fact, that 31 and a quarter pounder was bigger. But Bob Richards had caught a 31 and a quarter pounder. He, he was the one that caught the first big fish from Redmire. He was a tobacconist from Gloucester. So, Dick didn't want to disappoint him by taking his record off him a second time. So he said, oh, it weighs 31 and a quarter, Bob. <laughs> but it didn't, it weighed more. That was the type of man Walker was. Walker was very, very generous. You dare say to him, I like that, he'd give it to you. He'd give rods away, reels, and he built his rods and that. So, that was 1952. That's when... I realised that this man was something special like and he was he was a, a powerful he was what you would call a real true Olympiad I suppose how you'd expect Olympiad to look he was six foot odd tall silver grey hair real handsome looking guy you know every guy around would like to have his looks I suppose you could say he was an Apollo and uh, he was married to uh, a nurse who sadly died in his early days like and uh, that was a bit of a hit for him but during the war see Walker went to Keys College in Cambridge studied engineering after leaving school while he was at Keys College the war started and they wanted Walker to work at the aircraft establishment so he went down there and worked as a boffin and he worked on night fighter aircraft and he'd go out across Germany on an unarmed night fighter testing all this equipment, this radar equipment, which was new-like, and uh, he did crash land once down in Cornwall, damaged his ears and that, and so he worked down at the uh, aircraft establishment, and then after the war, his mother had this business of making lawnmowers. We're not talking the little lawnmowers that you and I would push, but lawnmowers that Sydney Cricket Ground would use, and lords and so forth. And he was the designer and 
and draftsman there like and uh, eventually his mother took over and uh, his mother lived to a really ripe old age way into her 90s she was and she read lucid and very well spoken so then 1953 Walker had this book Still Walter Angling come out where this revolutionised the angling world in that book Walker said you catch big fish by design and not by luck and he give five rules about how to catch big fish you know don't frighten them use the right tackle use a simple bait and all this keep everything simple and uh, in that book there was chapters on catching big roach and big carp big tench and so forth the book came out in February 1953 and I'd ordered my copy from Smith's and I was on my way to the college and Smith's opened at 9 o'clock and I had to be at college at quarter nine and I thought I'm going in late today so I uh, went down to Smith's, waited for an open, went in and I said uh, come to collect my Stillwalk Wrangling book that I've ordered please uh, yes sir said the assistant and I I think it was 18 shillings and sixpence not too certain on that one I think it was and I paid for it and I come out stood outside the shop and I'm flicking through it flicking through it flicking through it and before I knew it it had gone 10 o'clock and I thought I can't go to college so I'm going home so I went home and my mother said what are you doing home I said well I've been to Smith's mother I bought this book I said I've got to read it I just can't go to college today I've got to read it so she said, all right then. And I went up to my bedroom, I laid there, on my tummy with a book on my pillow, and I read it from cover to cover. And I came down about two, three in the afternoon, have something to eat and that, and I went back up and read it again. And I'm reading it and reading it, and I'm still reading it. And my, I have my, my copy's been leather bound, in green leather, and I've also got it signed by Dick Walker. And then the other book I've got is Drop Me a Line, Dick Walker, Morris Ingham. And that was a group, it was letters between the two anglers. And I've had that band up with. And uh, I've got that signed by Morris Ingham and Dick Walker. And I've probably, to the best of my knowledge, the only person in the country to have both books signed by the authors and bound up in green leather. But yeah, Walker was, he was, he was great. And then Angling Time started... Angling Times come out in June, June the 8th, Friday June the 8th, was it Thursday June the 8th, can't remember now. Anyway, in, Ju in July, sorry, July of uh, 53, the first edition of Angling Times, and in there was a column, well it was a page, Walker's Pitch, and he wrote that Walker's Pitch for 30 years. And when he first wrote it, he used to write in copper hand plate writing, and when he used to write to me, he used to have this lovely handwriting. And uh, I spoke to several editors over the years, and they said there was never, never a mistake, never an ink spot or nothing. He's just a great person, and he he was always helping other people, and nothing was too much trouble. And uh, privilege just shook a great man's hand. The very first day I met him was in the early fifties, down in London, a big Angus show there's a big queue of 16, 17, 18 year olds queuing up to see him we're all wearing trilby hats Dick Walker wore a trilby hat we wore it. we were disciples of Walkerism we really were and I remember eventually getting to, in, getting to the front of the queue can I have your autograph sir please and I shook his hand and he said yes call me Dick yes sir I said uh, it took me a long time before I could call him I couldn't call him Dick at first I called him Mr Walker and then eventually I called him Richard I never did call him Dick I don't think I ever did and uh, he was he was just some great guy I sadly passed away in 85 with cancer I remember going to the memorial service and recording the memorial service down in uh, Biggleswade drove down in the morning recorded the service, drove back in the studio, edit all the, all the material up for the programme following morning, and then I drove all the way down to Sussex for four days duck shooting. <laughs> There's many times when I sit at the waterside and think, what will Walker do now when I'm struggling to catch a fish? I think, what will Walker do now? 
Yes, he was no getting away from it. I've tried to get him memorialised in Westminster Abbey for many years. I've had letters back from Queen, first Prime Ministers. The nearest I got with it was when Margaret Thatcher was Prime Minister. She was very, very good and also I thought she was a brilliant person in any case. And so she tried a demnist to try and make it happen, but it didn't happen. And uh, I tried and tried and tried and I got a huge file of letters from all manner of people from you know army generals and so forth uh, in the hope of we could get him memorialised in Westminster Abbey I got letters from the cannon and all that but no it, it never happened so I was always sad about that one of Dick Walker's great friends was B.B. Dennis Watkins Pitchford he had a very memorable book out Confessions of a Carpfisher and uh, he wrote lots of other books, natural history books and uh, he was a great conservationist great wildfowler I well remember meeting B.B. on one occasion up in Perthshire middle of January gale blowing, snow sheeting down it's like a big curtain and uh, from across this bit of an old bog come uh, BB and we sat ourselves down behind a bit of an old wall and sat chatting about fishing and everything else and a great guy wonderful man I was very fortunate to have him on my radio show many times he was, uh, I remember the first time I visited his house it was a round house Northamptonshire it was an old toll house and he got a pond in the garden and uh, yeah BB I would advise any boy or girl to read his children's books absolutely wonderful he won a Carnegie Medal of Honour during the war for one of his children's books he was a very famous author and uh, he wrote another book Be Quiet and Go Away Angling under uh, another name because his publisher didn't want to publish it and he said well I'll, I'll get it published by somebody else no you can't do that the contract says that so he chose another name Michael Trahern was the name he chose and the book Be Quiet and Go Angling today a good copy will fetch £500 plus wonderful man really was tragically his wife died early and uh, he lost a son uh, daughter Angela uh, she looked after him she was very good and he had a brother he went to rugby art college and he returned to rugby art college as the art master eventually very good painter very good painter but great wildfowler and raconteur really wonderful guy and then Fred J Taylor what can one say about Fred J Taylor there was the two countrymen here was a man that was out in Tobruk during the war who fought Rommel's Africa Corps and he come home from the war and uh, returned to his fishing tench fishing and so forth and when Dick Walker bought out his book Steel Walker Angling there was something in the book that Fred J didn't agree with and he said to his wife, I'm going to write to that Mr Walker and explain that uh, I don't agree with this, this certain point. And so he did. And he got a wonderful, charming letter back from, from Dick Walker. And they met up. And the first time they met up was at Arsley Lake in the middle of winter. Freezing cold day, rain sheeting down. Walker went up to Arsley Lake to meet him during his lunch hour. And uh, he said... Walker, I think, said to him something along the lines of, God, he said, only a crazy angler will be out in a day like this. And Taylor said, yeah, I'll be glad when it's ended, he said, and I can go home. <laughs> and that's how they met. And they become very, very firm friends, and uh, they shared one another's fun of the riverside and all that. Fred was a great rabbit and a great cook of outdoors and wine-making. And Fred used to go and fish up in Canada with Stu Mackay, well I'd fish with Stu Mackay up in Canada as well for the carp and the Red River catfish and all this I remember being at a disabled event, I was in my wheelchair and it was a few days before August the 12th 
and known as the glorious 12th grass shooting season. And Fred said, have you been shooting Martin? And I said, no, but I'm, I should be grass shooting in a few days' time. I'm up on the moors over in Yorkshire. In your wheelchair? I said, yeah. I said, they put it back on the big Land Rover and they take me up and put me in the buck. I said, and uh, there I am and I shall have a few grouse. Yeah, good on you, boy, he said. Yeah, we had uh, lots of rain. I fished Wooten Lake, uh, which was the tailor's tench water. Famous old lakes them were. I caught my largest cruising carp to date up there. Two band twelve it was. I'm fishing with a guy and we're fishing at night from these barges. Can't call them punts, they're like LCEs. Tank landing craft. TLCs. Small tank landing craft type jobs. We're fishing by a torch beam illuminating the float. And the float went and I struck and I said to my mate, I said, oh, got we'd been talking about crucians, and he said, no crucians seem to come out. I said, I've got one of your crucians that don't come out, and I had two band 12. And, uh, yeah, that was, they were great times. And then sadly Fred passed away, but not before he got awarded his MBE. And he was awarded his MBE, because he wasn't fit to travel to the palace. He was awarded his MBE at his own by the Lord High Sheriff of uh, Bedfordshire. Yeah, lovely man, lovely family. I went to his funeral and I recorded the service, then interviewed some of the famous anglers of the service, come back to Radio Lancashire and used it on the programme the following week. And uh, it was well, well received by the listeners. Then there was Fred Buller. Fred Buller, of course, is still around, still young looking, is Fred. Uh, he used to have a shop called Chubbs, Tackle and Guns. But I suppose Fred Buller's really known for his knowledge of Big Pike. He'd done some very good books on, on Big Pike and spent a lot of time in Ireland. Buller and Faulkner's worked on another book, Freshwater Fishing, which was, I suppose we could say, was a minor classic. It wasn't in the, it wasn't like a Sheeran's book or a Holford and Skews, but it was a very, very good book, a big book. The ideal book to give a 10, 12-year-old boy for Christmas. Like when I was that age, I would be given books, Hawkins sailed the seven seas and things like that, and uh, I used to love them. Well, this would be an ideal book for a boy that age, and I've got, I've got a first edition in my bookcase, which will go to my grandson. Fulkus, he was such a fit man, he was really fit. Spitfire pilot during the war, got shot down over Europe, done his time in Colditz. Of course he was one of those that they couldn't keep under lock and key. But he was a sea trout man, his book Sea Trout Fishing is the Bible. If every angler who wants to catch a sea trout was to read that book, take it all in, take notice, and do what he said to do, then they would catch fish like Fulkus caught. Perhaps not so many nowadays because the sea trout are not round in the numbers. But uh, I still use this secret weapon when I'm sea trouting down here. In actual fact, I had a six pound fish on it just a few weeks ago. Sadly, uh, he's passed on, but he was a real great angler and he made some very, very good wildlife documentaries for TV. But I suppose really, his name was synonymous with children's stories back in the 1950s on the wireless. When, in them days, most of us kids would sit around our, sit around our wireless and uh, listen to children's hour. And uh, I used to listen to the stories. Very, very good. Uh, I could go on and on and on about Angus Billy Lane. I remember, I very friendly with Billy. Had a total shop in Coventry. Uh, I was fishing the River Cam back in the late 50s in a big match probably 300 competitors boiling up day uh, me and Billy had drawn next to one another I'd had a few skimmer bream and then my swim died and I'm watching Billy and every four or five casts I see him bring out a roach so I went down to him and sat behind him and chatted to him as he's fishing and after a while I said to him I ain't seen your float move Billy but I said you strike and you've got a roach well, it's simple as this, mine. Down where my float stops, I hold it back. There's a little weed bed. You can see that little bit of ripple on the water. I said, I can. He said, well, that's called by a little weed bed. And the fish are shoaled up there. 
So I run it down here and hold it there and I count to five and I tighten. He said, and every four or five casts, I've got another roach. And he won the match with a good catch of roach that day. Of course, Billy was great friends with Dick Walker. They go and fish the ooze together. You know you've got a, a world-famous matchman and a world-famous big fish angler. But that didn't bother them. They shared the secrets. Well, I don't think they had secrets, really, because they would give everything away to you. It's, it's a wonderful, wonderful time. I could go on and on and on. So where do we send? We have to end somewhere, so I suppose we'll leave it with those few famous anglers, but there's many, many more I could talk about. Well, there is just one more, actually, if you don't mind, and you mentioned him earlier, the late, great sea angling legend, Les Moncrief. Les Moncrief, a giant of a man, a man that a quietly spoken voice for his size, a man that really did know about beach fishing. He designed a rod for Mike James Rod Company many, many years ago. It's when uh, Mike James Rod Company they originally was building bamboo rods in Redditch and then, of course, fiberglass crept in and uh, so the bamboo couldn't be God because up until 1947, you used to get bamboo from Tonkin Bay in China and then Mao Tung took over and uh, they forbid all export of uh, bamboo from uh, Tonkin Bay and we couldn't get good quality bamboo. A lot of rod companies still had a good supply. So they turned over to uh, to fiberglass rods and uh, we all remember them white horrid looking things that you'd see on piers back in the 50s and, and then it turned to hollow fiberglass rods and that's when Les Moncrief came to prominence really though I knew him long before then when I fished with Frank Edmonds and Tom Hutchinson uh, and him down on Dungeness Beach with Brian Fuller and Dick Rogers and Brian and Dick and myself we were youngsters these weeds were the the experts and we learnt a lot from them and they coached us spent time hours with us at times helping us with our casting showing us how to how to cast properly and uh, I think it was uh Les with the layback style, I think it was. Trouble is, when you get 75, yeah, old mine starts going, but I think it was known as the layback style. He could punch that lead out way, way out into that dustbin at Dungeness, and he would catch the fish. But he, he was a good boat angler as well, and he fished in Ireland. But he was really was a great angler, and he worked with Dick Walker on rod designs and that. And it's also interesting to note that Dick Walker designed the first carbon fibre rod. Uh, I was sad really to see the demise of glass rods because glass rods we didn't take to their full value. Uh, we bought carbon in. Now carbon is a very brittle, very stiff material compared with glass fibre. It's quite interesting to note that three years ago Thomas & Thomas bought out a range of glass fibre fly rods and I'm proud to have a set of them at home which I use a lot and it's like fishing with a cane rod beautiful it is and with glass fly rods it allows you to make a mistake carbon rods don't allow you to make a mistake carbon rods, fly rods are right when the strong winds blowing and you're fishing the flats for bass and that but for general fly fishing I reckon the glass fibre rods are the top and it's interesting though that Bob Batoo who's a great angler still around He's a, probably the finest river angler in the country alive today. Still uses glass fibre rods and he still uses old Mitchell 300s with the butterfly rear uh, locking. And as me and Bert, Bob were talking on a programme the other week, glass fibre is for, more forgiving and the fish don't feel the resistance when they pick up the bait. So, Les, yeah, the more... Uh, I think they call them a tamashenta type of a hat. It was a woolen knitted thing, like a. I always said to my mates, hello, Les has got his tea cosy on, because that what it always reminded me of. Wonderful angler, very, very experienced angler. Then there's. Uh, oh, I could go on and on and on. Those days with Moncrief are spent fishing down along the South Kent coast. Now despite the fact that you are well known to a wide range of anglers for amongst other things your broadcasting on Radio Lancashire, 
It won't have been lost on those listeners that you don't originate in these parts, something you've already alluded to here and there earlier in our chat. So why then the move up here? I come up here for work, really. What it was, I was over in Yorkshire, and uh, a guy said to me, he said, do uh, you want to come home to me? Oh, where do you live? He said, Burnley. And I said, well, where's that? In Lancashire. So I said, yeah, I'll come over. So I went over for a weekend. He'd bring a suit with you. I said, where are we going on this Saturday night? And he said, we'll go down to Miners Club. I thought, I don't want to go down to Miners Club. What do I want to go down there for? I said, you've got no nightclubs. Oh, I said, this is better than nightclubs. Anyway, I went. And I walked in, and there's like six six inches of carpeting on the floor. I thought, really? And of course, there's lots of girls around, and my accent, immediately, they were all attracted to me. I didn't even have to buy a drink. Nobody let me buy a drink. I wasn't a member, so I couldn't, wasn't allowed to buy a drink. When I tried to give somebody some money to get a drink, no, no, he said, you were a guest. And then on the Sunday, this guy took me off and showed me the River Hodder and the River Ribble. And I saw a bloke catching some nice ropes, and I thought, it's nice. And then the following weekend, we'd done other parts, and uh, we spent a bit of time in the Ribble Valley and up in the Loon Valley and that, and I thought, it's a nice place to live. Kent was becoming a concrete jungle, and uh, I thought to myself, yeah. So anyway, I managed, managed to get myself a very good job as a photographer up here, and I came up, and then I stayed there. I didn't want to go home. And uh, I'm glad I stayed up here because it's been very, very good, and now I live in the finest part of the world, the finest part of England, the Ribble Valley. And I've got everything I want around me. I've got lots of friends, lots of fishing. So what more does a man want? What indeed. In fact, I recall the Queen once having said that if she could retire, which obviously she can't, and if she could choose anywhere within her realm to live, it would be Slaven at the top of the River Hodder in Lancashire, which sounds like a pretty damn good choice to me, and one you're obviously happy with as well. So thanks for giving up the last couple of hours of your time and having the tables turned on you for a change. Now you can dash off and get in a bit of fishing before the forecast rain for which Lancashire is equally famous starts to fall again. <laughs> <laughs>